Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in giving us your word and not just giving us your word, but giving us your spirit to understand your word. And we ask in the name of Jesus that you would give uh, freely to us who are hungry to know Christ, um, that we would understand this. Lord, I pray for two things. First, that the, uh, the ones struggling with seeing themselves in Christ and with Christ in the community of faith, uh, that they would receive comfort from this message if they've uh, walked in true and genuine repentance and for those that, uh, and that they would not leave convicted over what they have walked in uh, but for those that have not uh, considered repentance as we shall read about today, that you would, Father, by the Spirit, would prick their heart, leading them, granting to them true and genuine repentance. Father, I pray that the truth that is, that only truth would be spoken here and that which I have prepared that is unhelpful or untruthful <coughs> would be uh, removed from their minds, if not from my lips. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> long time ago, I shared with you, when I was a kid, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we would go to Rehoboth Beach, which is a seaside resort in Delaware. And um, uh, we stayed in this place that was on the boardwalk. And every day that we'd be there for the week, every year, uh, there would be a an African-American man walking up and down the boardwalk just saying, repent, repent. That's all he would say. He would wear all black, and he would walk back and forth. Long boardwalk, <coughs> hot summer day, and I used to sit out in the balcony and look at him and think, it's amazing. I, I didn't know what he was really saying. I, I didn't understand repentance, and uh, but I just knew he was at least consistent because every year, even once Carol and I started dating, eventually got married, uh, she saw him as well. It was it was phenomenal, uh, and, but we didn't know he was just saying repent. He didn't say anything else, and it did cause you to stop and consider life. But I had no idea what he meant by that, and uh, and part of that I think is due to us. Uh, there's much lost in translation now with the Bible. I think in our postmodern world we've lost certain definitions. We thought we understood words, and now we read words like repentance, and we don't know what they really mean from a biblical perspective. Now, you know, we're in the third chapter of John, and we've seen how Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David, right? We've also seen how he's the son of God. And, and so this chapter one is this is who Jesus is, this, these birth narratives sharing the glory of Christ. And then chapter two, we have this response to this Jesus. So here's the announcement of Jesus, and now here's the initial response, and you see some worship, Gentiles from the east, some hunted him down. So, so it's, it's, now we're into chapter three, and, and Matthew is going to go from infancy to uh, ministry, from childhood to adulthood. We're going to jump right into Jesus' ministry, but prior to that, we're going to hear about this ministry of John the Baptist, who's known as a preacher of repentance. Now, John the Baptist, um, he precedes Jesus in every gospel, central to understanding the message of the faith in understanding John the Baptist. There isn't a ton known of him. And Matthew definitely didn't record much about him, probably because he was known. Didn't feel the need to record it. 
But if you turn with me to chapter 3, we're going to look at this message of repentance and hopefully bring some clarity and uh, conviction and also comfort to many of you. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 to 12. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here you're introduced to this character, John the Baptist, and there he is in the wilderness preaching. Now that, that, and he's preaching repentance in the wilderness. That kind of ought to catch you a little bit. You know, if you're going to think about preparing the way, you'd probably go to a town, maybe a large city, to begin preaching, and, and perhaps he did initially. But then he moves his ministry to the wilderness. It seems odd. It seems like it would not be the place to initiate a ministry especially if you see yourself as a forerunner of the Messiah. But he does do that. He goes in the wilderness to preach. Now, why is that? I mean, these are the tensions in scriptures. You ought to ask, why, why there? Why not somewhere else? And a couple of reasons I just want to remind you of that I think give us some explanation as to why a preacher, a prophet, would be in the wilderness. Number one, I think he's reminding us of Isaiah. Uh, sorry, Elijah. He is like a type of an Elijah. You know, even down to his garments, he looks like Elijah. Uh, Elijah was a prophet of God calling the nation of Israel to what? Repentance. And where was most of his ministry done? In the desert, in the wilderness. And so he's reminding the people, I'm coming in line with Elijah. Remember in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, this is the last book of the Bible before the New Testament. It's going to be, after Malachi, there's going to be a prophetic silence for 400 years. So here's the last prophet before John. Here's what he says. Behold, I will send Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Elijah, so Malachi saying, and Elijah's going to come. We know it wasn't the Elijah, it was before Malachi, but an Elijah type is going to come before that great day. It's going to be a huge day. Before that awesome day the Lord comes, Elijah will come. And so why then is it, should it really shock us for John to go in the wilderness, to eat locusts, to dress like Elijah? No, of course not. But there's another reason he's in the wilderness. Because another prophet, Isaiah, in the 40th chapter 
also promised that one would come before that great and awesome day. Remember what we're building up for. Folks, you've got to look at the whole Bible, the whole book of Matthew together. Here's Jesus, this unique God-man, is birthed. He's worshipped and he's hated. And now he's going to become a minister, begin his ministry. And so this is the great and awesome day of the Lord. This is the great day of God's visitation on this planet in Christ. And, and so he goes into the wilderness. Look at what Isaiah says. He says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, this is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. It was a chapter of restoration. Uh, this was a word to the exiles. They were in Babylon. And, and, and Isaiah is encouraging them, saying, listen, there's going to be a day that Yahweh will come back and lead his people into the promised land. There will be a return from the exile. Yahweh himself will lead you out of the wilderness into the promised land, into a right reconciliation with God. He will restore all things. So John going into the wilderness. By the way, you're going to see Jesus. Where is the Spirit going to send him after his baptism? Into the wilderness. He's going to come out of the wilderness. So, so all of this is the grace of God so that the people would have known here is the Messiah, the promised one. Yahweh has come among us in, in the Messiah to lead us. So the first thing we see is while it's strange that he's in the wilderness, it makes perfect sense with the old testament perfectly filling fulfilling all those promises made people should have seen it but now there's something else strange about john the baptist not just where he preaches but what he preaches look at what he says in verse two he says repent for the kingdom of god is at hand or the kingdom of heaven i think it's interchangeable uh but repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand now what does repentance mean you know it, <clears throat> so if i were to ask you what does repentance mean? I think many of you would say, well, it means that, you know, we're to be sorry for what we've done. And I think that is in the word, that there is a sorrow. In fact, if you draw from the two Hebrew words that speak of repentance, sorrow is definitely part of that. But there's something else. There's, there's a turning with repentance. The Greek word means to change your mind. And, and presumably, when you change your mind about something, it should what? It should change your life about whatever you changed your mind on. I mean, because the way you think is the way you act. So, and the Hebrew word means to turn around. So, so repentance, when John is saying to repent, he's saying that, hey, you are a certain person before God doing life a certain way, but now when you see this awesome day of the Lord coming, now I'm going to turn around, I'm going to live differently, I'm going to think differently, and I'm sorrowful over the way that I did live. Uh, D.A. Carson says it's a radical transformation of the individual. Just, just seeing the, the direction of our life, the intent of our life, the posture of our life before God, all of it was wrong. It doesn't mean that I wasn't somewhat moral at different parts of time, but my whole life was postured wrong. I was living without God. I was living, maybe he was up there as some benevolent deity, but, but he was nothing of what the Bible teaches. And so repentance is turning all the way around and saying, whoa, I've got to reorient my life. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Perfect tense. It's there. Now, this kingdom of heaven is not marked out on a map or with geographical boundaries. The, the kingdom of heaven, from an Old Testament perspective, is God is reigning, right? Who reigns in heaven? God does. It's his kingdom. And so God is reigning. So when, when John comes and says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he's saying is now God is setting up his reign on earth in the Messiah. God has now chosen this day, this time. I'm the forerunner, the one after me. He's mightier than I am. He's going to establish my reign on this earth now. That's what he's saying. 
that sin and Satan are beginning to tremble. That this world order, it's beginning to tremble. Why? Because the Messiah has now come to establish God's reign. Now think about it with a wide-angle lens when you look at the Bible. right? God creates this kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2, and he places man and woman in it. And they're to live for his glory, under his rule, for their joy. And then, of course, they rebel against his kingship. They rebel against his reign, wanting to set up their own reign, and they plunge the kingdom into darkness. But God mercifully promises the establishment of a new kingdom. The seed's going to come. It's going to crush the head of the serpent, which helped lead in the destruction of the first kingdom. And and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, and he's going to deal with sin. And then you see, of course, that promise preserved, right? When the whole world's destroyed in Genesis 6, the promise wasn't in Noah, floated above in the ark. Then in, in Genesis 12, Abraham is given greater clarity that it's going to be through his seed. And then in, in David the king, we see another snapshot of this seed that's going to come and set up a kingdom. And then you sing the prophets all sing the same tune. A kingdom is coming. Restoration is coming. Removal from exile is going to happen. And then who's the last prophet? It's John. John's saying it's now here. I mean, it's profound. John understood himself. Matthew understands John as the last prophet to say, now it's here. Everything before me, that tidal wave of promises, crashes on the shores of the wilderness with John, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Let me just go with you just for a minute further, outside of our text, but just marching down the chapters of Matthew. What happens when Jesus comes? Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he's going to preach the same way John preached. And what does he do after that? He gathers people to himself. He begins to form this new community, this new kingdom. And then what, what does he do after that? Well, he begins to heal the sick, cleanse the leper, free the demonized, raise the dead. He begins to do things that are marks of this new kingdom as it's beginning to advance, as it begins to expand. So that's what John's saying. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent, he says, for the forgiveness of sins, sins. You know, we don't hear repentance a lot anymore. Uh, Preachers, I think, are scared of it. Uh, We're trying to be the friendly church, and we don't want to offend anybody. And so to mention sin is to raise up this idea of being accused of being judgmental. And uh, and, and our, our culture has morphed away from sin. We don't use terms like repentance and sin. We use dysfunction and therapy. I mean, I mean we're, we're getting away from this fundamental idea of, of running crosswise with God. In fact, Gresham Machen was a um, Princeton, or I should say Presbyterian theologian in the mid-20th century, and he said, the consciousness of sin was formerly the starting point of all preaching. But today it's gone characteristic of the modern age above all else is the supreme confidence in human goodness religious literature of the day is filled with that confidence get beneath the rough exterior of men we're told and we shall discover enough self-sacrifice to found upon it the hope of society the world's evil it can be said can be overcome with the world's good no help is needed from the outside world that's the that's the modern view of this day in fact charles spurgeon about 150 years ago in a sermon, said this. He said, mark you, in proportion as the modern theology is preached, the vice of this generation increases. To a great degree, I attribute the looseness of the age to the laxity of the doctrine preached by its teachers, 
From the pulpit, they have taught the people that sin is a trifle. From the pulpit, these traitors, from pretty strong language here, from the pulpit, these traitors to God and to his Christ have taught the people that there is no hell to be feared. A little, little hell perhaps there may be, but just punishment for sin is made, for sin is made nothing of. The precious atoning sacrifice of Christ has been derided and misrepresented by those who were pledged to preach it. They've given the people the name of the gospel, but the gospel itself has evaporated in their hands. From hundreds of pulpits, the gospel is as clean gone as the dodo from its old haunts. And still the preachers take the position and name of Christian ministers. So John is coming. I know this is probably, and when we get to 7, 8, and 9, it is startling language. We're not used to hearing it. And, and I have a, a quote at the end that I'm still deciding whether to use or not. It's so bracing that I'm afraid it'll run you out of here on a rail. But, but the reality of it is John is coming, and he says the kingdom has come. We're living in that age. We're living in that time. This overlapping of the ages, I tried to make it clear on Easter Sunday. The fact that a kingdom has been established and it's now growing. The fact that the kingdom hasn't been consummated doesn't de-justify the reality that it's come. There is an overlapping of the ages that we live in, and that's how we understand the reality of the kingdom, but not in its fullness. So what does John do? He preaches repentance. What happens? Well, look with me. In verse 5, he says, Jerusalem and Judea, all Judea, it says, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, folks, this should shock us. This is more oddity here in the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, for John to call, his ministry is primarily to Jewish people, and for him to call Jewish people, as a Jewish man, to repentance and baptism would be an anomaly for them. Uh, they might think of repentance as, well, I've got to ask forgiveness for this sin. But the repentance that John was calling for was this radical reorientation of life. And they're like, we're already part of the community. We've been circumcised. We don't need to repent. We don't need to reorient our lives. And John's saying, no, 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 this kingdom is so new. It's so radical. It's so different. Yes, you, you circumcised people. You need to repent and be baptized. Baptism would have thrown them. The Jews did practice certain washings for ritual purification. And if you were a non-Jew seeking to be a Jew, then you'd be baptized as an as a initiating rite. But a Jew would never baptize a Jew because circumcision was the outward mark of that covenant member. But John's saying, not now. Baptism now. Baptism is the means by which you are drawn into the covenant community. It would have been radical to them to hear that. That baptism is that sign. It's different. Even the Sadducees and the Pharisees that came would have had to be baptized. They couldn't claim, I've been circumcised. He says, no, you have to pass through the waters of baptism. And they came. They came and they saw their sin and they repented. It says they confessed their sins. The implication is they confessed them outwardly. They told John, they told others that they sinned against. This is part of repentance. This repentance involves a conviction of sin and then a confession of that sin, and then they, they hit the waters. And so for those of you who have repented of your sins, think about it. Because we, we kind of look repentance now as just signing a card or, or making a decision or praying a prayer, or we look at a lot of things that we do, but here's what repentance is. I want to make it really clear for us. 
It involves this conviction, this sorrow. There has to be sorrow. This is why we, we encourage parents to delay the baptism. We've caught some flack for this, thinking we shouldn't delay the baptism. As soon as some child says, give me Jesus, then we ought to throw him in the waters. I told you about that time we had this guy in, uh, I don't know if I've told them this or not, but uh, in Austria, um, when we were preaching and some guy, you know, of course we offered the gospel and we called people to believe in Jesus and some man came up and he wanted to believe in Jesus and he was really excited about it. It was really exciting for us. And, um, and so we're talking to him about it and he's saying, just, I want Jesus. And I was like, okay, okay, you know, you're thinking, okay, this guy's really excited. I want Jesus, right? And, and so it turned out that he thought we said visa, that he wanted a visa to come to the United States. So you got to really be careful about Jesus when you're in an international context and they want to get to America really bad. But, but, but that, that's why there has to be conviction of sin. Just There has to be that awareness that I've offended God, that, that my actions, my posture. Remember now, not just the individual things you've done. Folks, before coming to Christ, your posture is at enmity with him because you want to be God. You want to run your life. You want autonomy. You don't want to submit and bow the knee. And so it's really incredibly important for you to understand that that has to be conviction of sin. There also has to be this confession of sin. There is a place where we have to give word to God to speak to him, to confess to him that we have sinned against him in thought, word, and deed. And that, we've con- and that we've sinned against our spouses and kids and all that. I mean, confession is to be verbal. This conviction leads to confession, and and this confession ought to lead to change. This is part of repentance now. This change that that no longer do I want to sin. It's not that I don't. I still sin. When we talk about repentance, it's not instantaneous change, but there is instantaneous want to change. That I don't want to sin. My mind is changed. I don't look at God as as a kind old man in the sky. I look at him as a holy and just, merciful God. I don't look at Jesus as just a helper when I've got a struggle or a snag in my schedule. I look at him as a sovereign king over the universe who's died for my sins and been raised for my justification. I, I don't think of myself the same way anymore. I used to think, well, I was a pretty good guy. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a decent citizen. I haven't hurt anybody really bad. And, but now I see myself as just a humbled sinner that has been saved entirely by God's grace. I think about life differently. Life was just for how can I be happy, satisfied, protected, safe, health, whatever. And now I see myself as part of, part of you, part of a body of Christ, a kingdom, marching forward, waiting for the king to come back. So, so this change is real. And then, then that leads to baptism, right? And then we're baptized because baptism is then the sign of that death to the old Tom and, and new life in Christ given to Tom. So, so that's what these people are thinking. To truly repent, you've been convicted, you've been confessed, you have begun the process of change and you've outwardly displayed that in baptism. That's a lot different than just I believe in Jesus and now I'm going to heaven. It, it, it can be that simple, but be careful in the reduction of something very profound that you don't lose too many parts to it. Okay, but not everybody responded that way. And this is where it gets a little dicey now. Look with me in 7 and 8 and 9. It says the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to his baptism. Now, remember, the Pharisee is a teacher and interpreter of the law. A Sadducee is a priestly class, an aristocrat. 
Uh, difference, these two weren't friends per se. They had different beliefs. The Sadducees didn't really believe in angels or spirits, according to Acts 23. And they actually didn't believe in the physical resurrection. I mean, can you believe that? I mean, wouldn't that that'd lead you to despair to not believe in the physical resurrection? That's why they're sad, you see? Uh, You guys were on the end of the line on that one. <laughs> so I, I imagine that they were literally coming to examine this man's ministry. What is this guy doing out in the wilderness? What's he doing causing for repentance and calling for repentance and baptism? I mean, we're all Jewish people here. We're all part of the covenant. What's he doing this for? So I'm sure he had, they had questions. But look what John says to them. He says, you brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Boy, this is no seeker-sensitive preaching here. He's looking at the religious, mind you. Now, this is where it gets a little dicey for us here because he's speaking to the religious of the day. They had the law. They knew the law. They were trying to walk out the law. They clung to their heritage as Jewish people. And, and he's saying, you brood of vipers who who told you to flee the wrath to come? Now listen, that would have shocked them. They saw themselves as not facing the wrath of God. They were religious. They had the law. They had the circumcision. For goodness sake, they had Abraham as their father. And many of the Jews at this time even saw the merits of the patriarchs as filling down, justifying, and saving those that had come from the loins of Abraham. They thought they were good. They thought they were in the clear. They had all the badges of spirituality. And he looks at them and he says, you brood of vipers, you have no idea the kingdom of which I'm talking about. You're doing great as in terms of religion, but not in terms of a coming kingdom. And that's why John says, this is the sin of presumption that the church has to be woken up to. He says, don't presume he says, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise these stones up, to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, the lineage to Abraham, their ethnicity, their heritage to Abraham was a condition of salvation. They had it, we're good to go. And he's saying no. In fact, what he does is he's really, he's alluding to Isaiah 51. And Isaiah 51, I. Isaiah talking about the power of God to save. He said, you know what? Abraham was as dead as a stone in terms of fertility at 100. God can raise up children for Abraham. You think that in fertile speech he's dead? He'll have children because I want him to have children. And that's what John's saying. Just because you've come from Abraham doesn't mean that you're alive spiritually. Doesn't mean it at all. In fact, the irony of the whole thing is Abraham wasn't even Jewish. He was Gentile. He was from the Ur of the Chaldees. He was a moon worshiper. God delivered him and brought forth the nation out of him, but he himself wasn't Jewish. And yet they were claiming him as the right to be straight with God. Well, John warns them clearly. He warns these religious people. He says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, the axe is at the root. You're saying that your root is Abraham? The axe is right there. You will not be saved by your lineage to Abraham. You will not be saved by your spiritual badges. 
You have to repent and be baptized. By necessity, every single individual on this earth has to repent of their sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to enter the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. Jew, non-Jew alike. That's profound. Now, when we look, now remember, John's a historical situation here. He's the forerunner. We're going to be looking more at, at Jesus. Even John goes there in 10, 11, and 12 regarding this baptism that's coming that we'll speak about in just a minute. But, but for our purposes, trying to draw some application to this, that perhaps some of us need to repent of our religion. We, we need to repent of what we have trusted and tried. You know, they saw ethnicity as a means of salvation. Many of us think ethnics are a means of salvation. You've got the Christian badges. You've gone to church. You've become a member. You've been baptized as a kid. You may have a ministry. You may give some money to the church. All these things are creating for you a sense of well-being and acceptance with God. These things are creating for you this idea that, no, God accepts me. As you, If I were to ask you, why would God accept you? You would, you would just trape out a list of all the things that you've done. The perfect doctrine that you have. Uh, the life of morality. There's no trust in this mightier one coming. It's just all the things you've done. And I would say to you, you need to repent. You need to repent of that because that is a false repentance. If you lean on that, it's a tottering reed. It's going to break under you. It will not support you. There are many other false types of repentance we practice. I think about many Christians repent as, you know, kind of the, the worldly sorrow repentance. You know, you may have grief over the things you've done, but you never see your sin as vertical. You just see your sin as, well, it did hurt these people, and I feel bad about that. Others have more of a blame-shifting repentance. You say, well, I am sorry, but you know what? I had a horrible day, or, or you know, I am sorry about that. I want to repent to you, but it's just my, it's my Italian personality. It just gets the best of me, you know, or, or I'm sorry, but, you, you know, the way things went at work, everything went, went the wrong way. That is not repentance either. Repentance is this radical reorientation to God profound in its in its nature have you repented i mean do you sense sorrow for sin in your life i mean have you come to the place of seeing that you were at enmity with god and you're opposed i mean have you have you or have you just walked out the christian you were raised in a christian home or somewhat of a christian home and you just continued to walk it out and that is what you rest on because if it is i would warn you you need to repent of that religion It's something you need to take stock of. This is where it's hard for the preacher. It's hard for the preacher because, you know, it says in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that uh, we are the aroma of Christ. A life to those who are being saved. Death to those who are perishing. I mean, what we're handling here right now is life and death stuff on a transcendent level. Not, hey, this is what you have to eat to be healthy. This stuff that we're talking about is transcendent truth. It, it goes in this life and the next life. Well, well, John's come to announce his kingdom, and he's called us to repent and enter it. Now look at what he goes on to in 10, 11, and 12, because he begins to announce the king of this kingdom. And, and look at what he does, and, and this is where I, I want you to... Look with me in verse 10, or sorry, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. So John knows that his baptism is only a preparatory baptism. It's only a pointer to something. We don't want to live in John's baptism. And that's why I'm not building a whole 
long list of applications on this text because it really relates to pre-Christ, but it's important for us. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is saying that, you know, so, so the lowest job in the house would be caring for the feet or the shoes of the feet of people. You didn't get really any lower than that. And John's saying that he's not even worthy to have that job in comparison to Christ. Because Christ is mightier. He's more glorious. He's more powerful. Now, don't, don't think for a minute John is just kind of exercising false humility. John is no warm-up act for Jesus. John's a big dog in the scriptures. He's been prophesied by it. He was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. Jesus himself said, of all the men of this world, who's the greatest? John was. I mean, John is big time in the Scriptures. And he looks at himself, and he knows that. And he says, he's greater, so far greater, so far greater. Because what my baptism is pointing to, what Jesus is going to do in his ministry and life and death and resurrection is going to far surpass it. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit. Now, there is a lot wrapped up in this. Uh, and, I, and I know that. But, but, but let, me just, let me just dip into it a little bit. This baptism of the Spirit, because we know what he's speaking about, because in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, the apostles, you know, when the apostles are with Jesus, he says, John's baptism with water was for repentance. But the Spirit's going to come upon you and baptize you. Acts 1.5, just kind of butchered the back end of it. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. That's Jesus speaking, saying you're going to be baptized with the Spirit. See, see, this is essential for you to understand that only Jesus can truly save us and change us. And this baptism that Jesus does is by the power of the Spirit. So we even sang it, come ye sinners. Do you remember? And then that line, tis the Spirit's beam. If the Spirit, because Jesus has died for us and he's risen to the Father, he said, it's good that I go away, that, that another counselor can come. The Spirit comes and now the Spirit convicts of sin and shame and guilt and leads us to the Son. That's the role of the Spirit. And so what true repentance is, is it's that conviction of sin, but it's prompted by the Spirit. It's not prompted by your fear of death. It's not prompted by, wow, this makes sense, I'm going to do it. The Spirit has to bring about the change. And that's why He's greater, because the Spirit not only wakes you up to your sin, but, but actually takes out your heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. So the Spirit imparts new life to you so that now you can live like Christ. You're not just... It may be a battle with sin, but you're going to win the battle because the Spirit of God now dwells in you. This is why it's greater. Jesus' baptism isn't speaking in tongues. This baptism of the Spirit is the Spirit of God pouncing on you, opening your eyes. You can see God new. You repent of your sins and you walk. Now, the water baptism is still important, but it points to that. And it points to what Jesus has done. And that's this idea of, Jesus saying, no one will see the kingdom of God. No one will enter the kingdom of God unless they're what? Born of water and the Spirit. The Spirit has to play a role. That's why he says, one is coming mightier than I. Mightier than I. 
But not just is Jesus mightier because his baptism is greater, but his judgment's greater. You know, John warned of judgment. He says the axe is already through the tree. But Jesus is the judge. He says, look with me in 11. And this is where I kind of want you to gird up your minds with me. Because I know you're going to you're going to read this. You're going to believe it at one level and you're going to walk out of here not believing it. He says his winnowing fork. So it's his by possession is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus is the judge. Isn't it amazing? Jesus is both savior and judge. That your, your future in relationship to God is dependent upon your reference to Jesus. That he has the winning fork. He's the one, you know, you're to see this farm scene with the farmer gathering the, the, the wheat. And he, he tosses the wheat into the air and the kernels that are naturally heavier fall after it's been threshed and pressed down and broken up. They throw it in the air. The chaff, which is lighter, blows away, and the kernels fall to the ground. The kernels are gathered up, put in the barn, or the proverbial picture of being with God. The chaff, which is worthless, is gathered up and is thrown into the fire, thrown into hell, thrown into eternal separation from God. So th- this is a huge message John's saying. He's coming for us. He has come. And for those of us who don't repent, we don't orient our lives around Christ. We're not baptized by the Spirit. That this is the end. So I, I would ask you this, for, for, the, for the Christian here, at a minimum, for the Christian here, to know that the storm is coming and to rest safe and secure uh, is, is great comfort for us. And those of you who have truly repented of your sin, turned by faith to Jesus Christ and cling to him for everything, for salvation, for life and breath with joy, satisfied in him for all things. You rest as you read these texts. You, you still should quiver a bit because it was only by grace that you've been woken to this truth. But, but you rest, and I want you to leave here comforted. But for those of you who have not walked, have not experienced this genuine repentance, then it, it is a, there's an urgency to this. The ax is already at the root. In John 3.18, he says this. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's amazing. Condemnation has already taken place. And so to the non-Christian here, or the one that hasn't repented, you may may say, and I guess what I'm asking you to do, even those of you Christians, just, you know, it says in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Just test yourselves. I mean, it, it, is, it is an appropriate and a biblical thing to do to ask, did I genuinely repent? Have I reoriented my life? Do I see Christ alone as my Savior? I mean, ask yourselves this. Because that great and terrible day that Malachi talked about, it, it is a day that will come, either by our death or by his return. And it's a day that you don't want to be figuring out about the day on the day. In fact, let me just quote, let me just, I'll read this from Charles Spurgeon, just because I think his literary skills are, you know, without parallel by God's grace. He says, how terrible to await the dread advance of a hurricane, such as occurs sometimes 
in the tropics to wait in terrible apprehension until the wind shall rush forth in fury, tearing up trees from the roots, forcing rocks from their pedestals, and hurling down all the dwelling places of man. And yet, sinner, this is your present position. No hot drops have yet fallen, but a shower of fire is coming. No terrible winds howl around you, but God's tempest is gathering its dread and artillery. As yet the floodwaters are dammed up by mercy, but the floodgates shall soon be opened. The thunderbolts of God are still in his storehouse, but lo, the tempest hastens. And how awful shall that moment be when God, robed in vengeance, shall march forth in fury. Where, 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 O sinner, will you hide your head? Or what place will you flee? Oh, that the hand of mercy may now lead you to Christ. He is freely set before you in the gospel. His riven side is the rock of shelter. You know you need him. Believe in him. Throw yourself upon him. And then the fury shall be passed over forever. That seems so stark to our modern ears, doesn't it? And yet, do we not believe it? Is that not the teaching of Scripture? That the judgment of God will be that way? And where you stand in relation to Christ is where you stand in relation to this judgment. So let us uh, pray. And and for those of you who have been made uncertain, I I trust uh, that come forward. We'll be up front and would love to talk to you. I, I, my, my prayer when we were praying early this morning, I, I hate false panic. You know, to yell fire in a crowded building when there's no fire is a crime. I, I don't want to create false panic at all. In fact, I want to I create comfort for those of you who have repented, who have sensed the Spirit of God in them. Your life has changed. You've, you've become different. You know, you are different. That, that, that you, are, you, you see you're turning your eyes from sin. You're looking to God. I mean, rejoice. Rejoice that the Spirit of God has taken up residence in you and is incrementally moving you towards Christ. Find comfort in this. But for those of you who don't have that, then please take heed of the concern that is upon your soul. And if you feel so led, come forward. Or talk to a believer that you know. Uh, But for goodness sake, don't not do anything. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to open up for you to pray. It can be a time of confession. I just ask you to pray loudly because in a room this size, this full, it's hard to hear you. And the point of our corporate prayer is that I hear you, you hear me, so we can agree with one another. I would also ask you to pray briefly. I know sometimes that's hard because you've got a lot on your heart, but, but that allows room for others to pray. And then Ray will uh, close us in just a moment. Father, Thank you for this word. Thank you that you are not bashful about bringing truth to bear. Strengthen our souls that we may hear it right. Father, I confess my sin of just my humanness and my ignorance <coughs> that can muddle clear things and can. <coughs> and I, I just ask in the name of Jesus that truth would remain on the souls of these dear friends, that this truth would be helpful to them. Uh, in upbuilding, in challenging. And I pray this in the name of Jesus.